Hello and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvements Author in the Room conference call. My name is Kim and I'll be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Madge Kaplan, Senior Communications Strategist and former editor and health correspondent for National Public Radio. Madge, you may go ahead. Thank you very much. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Author in the Room, a project of JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. Author in the Room is made possible by a generous grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. My name, indeed, is Madge Kaplan. I'm Senior Communications Strategist here at IHI and serve as moderator for these monthly discussions. They're designed to bridge the gap between knowledge, what is published in an article, and action, being able to translate knowledge into steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Today, our featured author is Dr. Charles N. Ford. He's the author of the article, Evaluation and Management of Laryngopharyngeal Reflux, published in the September 28, 2005 issue of JAMA. Dr. Ford is Professor and Chair of Otolaryngology at the University of Wisconsin. He has published over 100 peer-reviewed journal articles and also edited a textbook of phonosurgery. His clinical practice and research is focused on voice and laryngology. Welcome, Dr. Ford. Thank you. Also with us today to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Ford's research with an eye toward that all-important clinical improvement is Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and a practicing internist. Hello, Dr. Kylo. Thanks, Madge. The purpose of today's and future Author in the Room calls is for you to hear directly from an author, sometimes authors, about research findings that can improve patient care and clinical practice. We know that making the leap from what's on the page to changes in how care is actually delivered can be daunting. That's why each Author in the Room call is guided by a clinical improvement expert, such as Dr. Kylo today. The way our hour together uh, will go is as follows. Dr. Ford will spend about 10 minutes summarizing his findings. Dr. Kylo will then take another 10 minutes to describe improvement methods and suggest some practical ways to apply the research findings to medical practice. At the bottom of the hour, very close to that, we'll turn to questions from callers for Dr. Ford and Dr. Kylo, and hopefully we'll have some good discussion. IHI and JAMA plan to study the degree to which author in the room participants incorporate clinical improvements suggested by our experts and the impact these changes have on clinical practice. So we ask that all participants complete two short surveys immediately after the call and three months from now. These surveys are emailed to you and we do thank you for taking the time to complete the surveys so that we may really monitor and measure the value of these discussions. Uh, we have about 60 people, I believe, registered for the call today. Members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. And one other note, the call is being recorded and will be made available on the IHI and JAMA websites. 
Welcome all, and let's get started. Let me again introduce Dr. Charles Ford, who will provide an overview of his newly published clinical review of evaluating and managing cases of laryngopharyngeal reflux. Welcome to Author in the Room, Dr. Ford, and we're very eager to hear about your findings. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to begin by saying that uh, my motivation for writing this article, this review article on laryngopharyngeal reflux, is that it seems like it's an entity that's talked about a great deal and very poorly understood. Uh, in fact, just uh, pa this past week, there was an article in the Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Journal out of Great Britain where they polled a number of general practitioners and found out that oh, the large majority, 80% or so, were really unaware of the entity of laryngopharyngeal reflux. So uh, I think that we are uh, doing a bit better than that in this country. However, uh, it's, there's still lots of misunderstanding. So there are three things I'm going to stress repeatedly, I believe. Uh, one is that laryngopharyngeal reflux differs substantially from gastroesophageal reflux in the way it presents and in the way it should be treated. Uh, it's a, uh, secondly, that it's more demanding in terms of uh, treatment. Treatment needs to be more aggressive and more prolonged. And then finally, to try to give give you an approach which we've outlined as an algorithm for managing uh, patients who are suspected of having laryngopharyngeal reflux. So um, let me begin by saying that reflux of gastric contents is a major cause of laryngeal pathology. The pathophysiology and symptom complex of laryngopharyngeal reflux differs, as mentioned, from gastroesophageal reflux disease the laryngeal pathology results really from small amounts of uh, stomach refluxate, typically occurring during the day while the patient is upright, and causing damage to fragile laryngeal tissues, producing localized symptoms. So unlike classical gastroesophageal reflux, laryngopharyngeal reflux is not usually associated with esophagitis, heartburn, and complaints of regurgitation of acid-tasting substances. I think it's important to recognize that there are some basic errors that are commonly committed um, by uh, uh, folks in primary care as well as uh, many specialists, and, um, and that's because the symptoms are relatively nonspecific. For example, Patients who present with hoarseness uh, are often diagnosed as having laryngitis. Laryngitis is a very nonspecific term, which could be the result of reflux, infection, sinusitis, allergy, lesions of the vocal fold, and so forth. And many of these patients are inappropriately then treated with antibiotics, often multiple courses of antibiotics, often voice rest or gargling, all of which can aggravate the, uh, the condition. Another, another typical pathway is that patients come in complaining of chronic cough or chronic throat clearing. The chronic cough patient is often diagnosed as uh, asthma, and they can be treated again inappropriately on an empirical basis with bronchodilators or uh, topical steroids. And things like Advair, for example, can be very damaging to the vocal folds with chronic uh, use. So um, again, uh, even as otolaryngologists, we see patients who come in complaining of sinusitis and postnasal drainage, and uh, what they're really experiencing 
is uh, irritation secondary to reflux, uh, some inability to clear secretions, and they can be at uh, uh, at best sometimes treated with antibiotics, which is inappropriate, and uh, in some uh, cases I think even operated on with uh, endoscopic sinus surgery, which uh, would be a, a grave mistake. Uh, finally, I might mention that there are patients who come in with laryngeal lesions such as granulomas that are the result of reflux, and these patients can undergo surgery, which again is uh, uh, inappropriate without addressing the underlying uh, reflux problem. So these patients present typically with symptoms of throat clearing, coughing, chronic cough, non-productive, and hoarseness. Uh, there are several other nonspecific symptoms, and based on a careful study of pH probe confirmed laryngopharyngeal reflux cases, uh, Bolaski several years ago developed a very useful self-administered tool called the, the Reflux Symptom Index, and this is one that uh, clinicians can use to detect uh, reflux, uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux, and also to monitor progress. Patients are basically asked to use a zero to five point scale and grade the following symptoms, hoarseness or voice problems, throat clearing, excessive throat mucus or postnasal drip, difficulty swallowing, coughing after eating or lying down, breathing difficulties or choking spells, troublesome or annoying cough, sensation of something sticking or a lump in the throat, and then finally heartburn, chest pain, indigestion, uh, and so forth. So um, looking at the numbers, if you, if you have a reflux symptom score of over 13, there's a high correlation with patients having or proving to have uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux based on pH uh, monitoring tests. Now, with many entities, we can usually look for a, a sign of the disease, and unfortunately, laryngopharyngeal reflux has a number of uh, signs or findings on laryngoscopy which again can be nonspecific, um, such as thickening, redness, edema, and so forth. There have been about three different uh, things uh, cited in the literature that seem to correlate fairly well with laryngopharyngeal reflux. And number one is posterior laryngitis, which is a focal redness and edema in the posterior back portion of the, of the larynx. Uh, another uh, strong correlation is patients with contact granuloma or granulomatous lesions. Uh, I show a picture of that in the, uh, in the article. And these lesions can be sometimes very large. They can obstruct the airway somewhat. Uh, they can be associated with discomfort. And the tendency is to think that they won't go away with treatment. And it does take prolonged treatment often to get these to resolve. But, but with control of, of stomach acid with proton pump inhibitors, most of these will regress if you're patient. And then if you do remove them surgically, they're much less likely to recur if you treat medically the underlying reflux problem. Finally, there's an entity which is described as pseudosulcus, and a sulcus is kind of an indentation. <clears throat> and when there's an indentation below the plane of the vocal fold and then there's a swelling under that, it presents this sulcus-like um, appearance. And this has been highly correlated with um, patients with reflux. And um, uh, Belaski, again, looking at entities such as pseudosulcus and granulomas uh, and redness and edema, uh, came up with something called a reflux finding score, uh, which is, again, correlates well with uh, uh, pH monitoring uh, documentation of reflux. 
So how do we confirm the diagnosis? Now, essentially, there are three approaches that we might use. Uh, one of these is a response to uh, behavioral uh, changes, empirical medical management being a second, and then actually uh, documentation of reflux events. Uh, because many patients respond well to behavioral modification and initial medical management, uh, uh, oftentimes acid suppression trial is a good way to start out, uh, uh, as we'll see in the algorithm, uh, in making this diagnosis. Uh, subsequently, <coughs> those who fail to respond uh, might undergo more extensive endoscopic examination to look for uh, objective findings that are associated with uh, reflux. Currently, the most sensitive indicator to document reflux events is the ambulatory multi-channel intraluminal impedance test, which can be done uh, with pH monitoring. And this approach is based on changes in resistance uh, to an alternating current that occurs between electrodes placed at six or seven points along the course of the esophagus up to and including uh, the, the uh, area about two centimeters proximal or above the upper esophageal sphincter. Uh, this is very useful because not only does it detect uh, acid events, but it also can detect non-acid reflux events. And again, not only will it detect liquid refluxate, but also uh, gaseous reflux, which may be much more significant in irritating the larynx because it, the gases can diffuse and affect the uh, adjacent laryngeal structures. So again, the uh, treatment uh, paradigm that we would propose would start off with um, patients who are suspected of having this problem, uh, undergoing um, behavioral change in terms of uh, encouraging weight loss, cessation of smoking, avoidance of alcohol, trying to change the diet so that there is a restriction of chocolates, fats, citrus fruits, carbonated beverage, spicy tomato products, red wines, caffeine, and uh, late night meals. Uh, in terms of drug therapy, there are basically four categories of drugs that can be used for treating reflux. Uh, proton pump inhibitors being the main one, H2 receptor antagonists, prokinetic agents, and mucosal cytoprotectants. Frankly, at this point, all of the data would suggest that it's primarily the proton pump inhibitor regime that is the preferred approach. And even though there has been some controversy about this in the past, I think a recent article by Park et al., uh, which was done uh, several months ago, shed a great deal of light on the controversy. They concluded that uh, twice a day dosing of proton pump inhibitors resulted in significantly higher symptom relief than daily dosing, and noted that the non-responders improved when twice daily dosage was extended uh, over a period of four months. Uh, they did not find any additional benefit by adding uh, uh, H2 antagonist therapy. So uh, what we might uh, take from this is a, uh, uh, an approach to uh, assessing and managing these patients, which I presented as an algorithm in the uh, in the manuscript, and it begins with uh, clinical evaluation and progresses to an empirical trial of lifestyle and dietary changes and initiation of proton pump inhibitor therapy. Although most patients can experience symptomatic improvement in three months, 
It often takes at least six months for the laryngeal symptoms and related physical findings to resolve. Unlike classical GERD, treatment for laryngopharyngeal reflux must be more aggressive and prolonged in many cases to achieve resolution. Patients whose laryngopharyngeal reflux has resolved should have drugs titrated off, while others who show signs of improvement should be treat treated with a, an appropriate dose, perhaps uh, 40 milligrams of a drug equivalent to omeprazole, uh, twice daily. And again, it's important that they take this prior to meals. And I see many patients who come in uh, taking uh, proton pump inhibitors in the morning and at nighttime, and frankly, if they don't take it before meals, it's much less uh, effective. Uh, cases that fail to substantially improve with aggressive medical management over three months require a definitive assessment. And at this time, I think the most uh, definitive method is the ambulatory um, uh, uh, intraluminal impedance uh, testing with pH monitoring. Uh, where this technology is not available, multi-channel pH monitoring remains the well-tested uh, option. Uh, mucosal injury, uh, hiatal hernia, uh, other esophageal pathologies such as Barrett's esophagus or metaplastic changes uh, can be documented by esophagoscopy. Uh, I think it's important to monitor carefully laryngeal lesions and if these are not responding to therapy then direct microlaryngoscopy or referral to an otolaryngologist for this would be appropriate. Barium swallow esophagogram and manometry are also helpful in describing the pathology. Patients whose reflux fails to resolve after definitive medical or surgical treatment must be followed indefinitely with careful examination of the upper aerodigestive tract for signs of complications. Uh, I didn't mention in any detail surgical management, but certainly uh, when medical management fails uh, and patients demonstrate a high volume of uh, liquid reflux and lower esophageal sphincter incompetence, uh, then the uh, referral for evaluation for possible fundal plication, preferably done uh, laparoscopically, uh, is a, a viable option. The results with this type of surgery, while not as good as uh, for classical GERD, are still uh, satisfactory. And there was a wonderful study out of the uh, University of Washington uh, several years ago by Pellegrini and his group demonstrating the efficacy in, again, pH-documented uh, cases of laryngopharyngeal reflux. I think that might be sufficient uh, uh, for uh, a discussion. Thank you so much. Yes, uh, lots of content there. Okay, what we want to do now is turn to what this research and Dr. Ford's explanation and review suggest about changes in clinical practice that clinicians and perhaps those in a position to propose new practice ideas might consider. So we turn to Dr. Kylo for what sort of improvement in care might follow from what we're hearing about today. Dr. Kylo, go ahead. Thanks, Madge. Thanks, Dr. Ford, and greetings, everybody. Um, the challenge for uh, providers is to take the lessons that we learned from Dr. Ford's excellent uh, uh, clinical review of this topic and to use uh, that article to make improvements in our daily practice uh, to improve the care that we deliver to patients with these problems, obviously. So the value of such good studies is, to, is that they do provide us guidance on how to make care better. 
So the question for us is how do we go about doing that? Is there a process that helps us to take the data and to put it into practice better? And at IHI, we use a tool called the Model for Improvement to help us bring about such rapid improvement. Uh, the model is a very simple, uh, straightforward thing, although it's sometimes difficult for organizations to implement. It's based in the scientific method. That's, I think, an important point. And we use it uh, in our management system to improve the processes of care. So the model has two important parts. The first part, is, in the first part, uh, you decide explicitly what it is you're trying to accomplish, what your aims are. And then the second part, you use tests of change to see whether you can make uh, uh, progress towards those aims. So let's just discuss that, this very quickly before we get on to uh, a discussion of the, the, uh, the article. The first part of the model for improvement has three pieces. The first is that we, we, it, is, it is required that we state our aim. We need to know specifically what it is that we're trying to accomplish. For example, uh, let's assume you're work, you might be working on adverse drug events. You're, you might state your aim to be, our aim is to reduce adverse drug events by 75% in one year. Uh, it's very specific uh, and it's time limited. The second part uh, is to establish measures, and the aim gives you guidance on what your measures should be. For example, you might measure adverse drug events per 1,000 doses of a medication if you're working on adverse drug events. And the third is to identify testable changes that will allow you to make improvement in the area uh, that you're focusing on. So those are all involved in this first part of the model for improvement. The second part of the model is to rapidly test changes in the way you practice in order to accomplish the aims. And it requires that you have good ideas for what, you, what things you ought to test. This article is, I think, packed with good ideas on how to take better care of a patient who might have laryngopharyngeal reflux. In improvement parlance, the process of going about these changes is called the Plan, Do, Study, Act process or uh, cycle, or the PDSA cycle. It involves planning a test, doing the test, collecting some data, and studying the results, and then acting on what you learned. And this is obviously very much uh, consistent with what we know, all know of as the scientific method. Uh, it involves using explicit, rapid, action-oriented learning uh, that, again, is consistent with the scientific method. So we use the best available knowledge to try something, measure the results, and based on the, on the results of those tests uh, to go into the next uh, cycle of learning. Well, the last thing we need to understand is when do we go from learning to implementation? When are we ready to stop testing and to start making changes in our everyday practice? And this answer obviously depends on many factors. When you've run successful tests and when you understand their results, it'll be much clear, more clear to you uh, what position you're in to begin implementation. For example, to move from testing a change with one physician to implementing uh, the change that you've decided upon in, in an entire group or clinic or hospital. So we want to take Dr. Ford's content and work with it in terms of how do we use his excellent clinical review to make changes in our clinical performance. Uh, Dr. Ford made several recommendations based on, uh, on the paper, so let's move now to talking about them, and we're going to open this up for a question and answer shortly. As we do, it would be useful for you to tell us both who you are and what your discipline is. I imagine many folks on the, on the uh, call will be uh, representative of primary care practices. Others may be um, uh, otolaryngologists uh, or uh, other disciplines, so it would be helpful for us to understand that. 
So as we get started, Dr. Ford uh, already outlined a number of changes that he would suggest. Um, and uh, let's, why don't we just open it up for questions at this point, Madge? Okay. All right. Well, we will um, see what's on people's minds, uh, sort of absorbing uh, a lot of this information and also uh, the frame that you have provided. Uh, as Chuck, uh, Dr. Kyler was suggesting, um, it, you may have questions of various types about the science, the methodology, and about the process of how to go about making changes in clinical practice. And we do hope to especially focus on this area. A quick reminder that IHI and JAMA do plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we greatly greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of the discussion we're having today. So we want to uh, turn to you to see what's on your mind. Please state your name, where you're from. Uh, Dr. Kylo is also suggesting, good one, uh, tell us your discipline. Uh, if you could, be as concise as possible and tell us to whom your question is directed, if that's appropriate. Okay, uh, Kim, we'll go to questions. Thank you, Madge. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press zero, then the one key on your touchtone phone. This will place you into a queue, and one by one we can open up your line, so you may each ask your questions. Again, that is zero, one on your touchtone phone. That'll just be one moment for questions. Match, there is nothing at this time. All right. Well, we'll give people a chance to uh, kind of uh, get uh, prime the pump here and think of some things they'd like to discuss. I will start off with a question. Uh, I want to know whether or not it's appropriate to be thinking in terms, I guess I'll direct this uh, to Dr. Ford in particular, to be thinking of uh, laryngopharyngeal as something to be cured or managed. Uh, you uh, gave some suggestions of things that might indicate that, you know, uh, in your algorithm that treatments might not be working and therefore you might move to something more, uh, even more aggressive uh, all the way, you know, to surgery. So I wonder if you could clarify whether we're talking about something more acute or something that could be more chronic. Well, I think that there's a great variability, Madge, in the uh, extent of expression of laryngopharyngeal reflux. And in many cases, I think in terms of cure, uh, because there's been an insult, the tissues have been damaged, and relatively short-term therapy uh, with uh, proton pump inhibitors, for example, can resolve the problem. The patient's symptoms can be resolved, uh, and, uh, and the tissue changes uh, can clear up. However, uh, in many cases, it does entail long-term management, and in cases of specific laryngeal uh, pathologic changes, such as as granulomas, uh, they may require <clears throat> the addition of surgical um, intervention. Uh, I should mention uh, finally also that uh, uh, many of these patients require long-term follow-up, and, uh, and it may be a lifetime of, of management, of controlling symptoms but not really curing the, the entity. Okay. All right. Kim, any questions yet? We do have a question from Maureen with Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Please go ahead. Hi, my name is Maureen Capitelli, and I'm with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Missouri. And uh, 
I work as a physician practice consultant working with physician quality improvement. My question is, uh, since this is generally treated or I would imagine seen initially by primary care type physicians, um, family practice, internal medicine, and they would generally be looking at this in terms of an ENT type situation, you know, sinusitis or cough or that sort of thing, at what point is it appropriate to refer them to a specialist? You know, if the, if the primary care physician does not see improvement, and should they refer them on to an ENT or a gastroenterologist? Interesting question. Uh, Dr. Ford, do you want to start with that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a wonderful question, and uh, I'm happy to hear from field because uh, one of the problems that we, we have had uh, regionally, and I think it's true nationally, is some reluctance on behalf of, of uh, insurers to cover the cost of proton pump inhibitors because there are other drugs that are less expensive to cover. It's just that they don't work for this. Um, but um, uh, the um, um, let me just uh, have you rephrase the, the key point of your question again so I can, I can focus on that. Um, again, if uh, the member or patient is being seen by a primary care physician type, when should um, they be referred on? Yeah. Whom? Okay. Um, I think that um, the the algorithm that I laid out is such that, given a a symptom complex, the primary care physician can make an assumption that this might be laryngopharyngeal reflux, and based on that assumption. Uh, if they have the wherewithal to look at the larynx, and many primary care physicians can do this, but, 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 but most can't, uh, then they should take a look and see if in addition to the symptom complex, there are findings such as edema uh, or erythema of the uh, larynx. And uh, based on that alone, they can begin an empirical trial with proton pump inhibitors in adequate doses for about three months. At that point, if there isn't resolution, that, that's the point at which uh, they want to look at, uh, at referring the patient on. And I think if the symptoms are primarily referable to the, uh, to the throat area, such as uh, chronic cough, post-nasal drainage, then the otolaryngologist should be the primary referral source. If the symptoms are primarily GERD-associated, uh, then I think they should be referred to a gastroenterologist. Dr. Kylo, do you, is there something you might want to add to that, sort of thinking from your perspective in primary care practice? Yeah, what I would like to ask, actually, uh, the conversation I'd like to, to stimulate a little bit and ask Dr. Ford about is, how much do we know about the overlap uh, between GERD and, and LPR, uh, I guess both the sort of physiologic and the symptom overlap, and what do we know about the awareness? You mentioned something about the awareness elsewhere, but what do we know about the awareness of, I would say, primary care in particular about the differentiation between these two clinical entities? Well, I think that uh, there is some overlap. And, uh, and uh, where there is over overlap, the diagnosis is off, often much easier to make. It's uh, uh, the cases where there are not associated GERD-type symptoms uh, that the diagnosis becomes very tricky. And there's an overlap with a number of entities that can't be overlooked. Uh, for example, uh, many patients will have allergies, and that can be a factor in producing some of these uh, symptoms. Many of them will have uh, chronic drainage from sinusitis. So I think these things need to be, to be looked at. And again, I think the primary care physician can go a long ways towards uh, eliminating these uh, in the differential diagnosis just based on the history. 
and in, from the primary care perspective, uh, what would you uh, estimate to be the most common presenting symptom? Do you think it would be chronic cough, or do you think it would be other uh, laryngeal symptoms? I think that um, probably chronic cough and, uh, and throat clearing and a complaint of uh, thick mucus in the back of the throat, uh, post-nasal drainage, uh, would be quite common. Uh, some of the, the more alarming presentations might be something we didn't mention earlier, but paradoxical vocal fold motion or uh, laryngospasm, uh, which can be provoked by uh, reflux events. And, uh, and these are the ones that often get referred to the allergist uh, because the assumption is that it's uh, an allergic uh, uh, dyspnea. Right. And I, I found the, I, uh, again, from my own perspective, as I read the article, um, I thought that the most helpful thing was an, an awareness building of the differentiation between GERD and LPR. Now, that being said, uh, as I look back at my practice, I think a lot about those patients that I've treated who probably have LPR, and I might have treated them as if they had GERD without reflux symptoms and, and therefore treated them less aggressively than possible. But as I step back and look at the algorithm for assessment, uh, uh, on which is figure two of your article, and I know that many of the callers uh, may not have the article in front of them. Uh, from a primary care perspective, I found that the reflux symptom index is a very helpful thing. Another part of the algorithm, which in, in that same box is a reflux finding score, which requires a laryngoscopy. Uh, now, uh, most primary care practices are probably not going to have those capabilities, and because of the, the commonness uh, with which things like chronic cough present, they're probably not going to refer people routinely to an ENT to, to do the laryngoscopy. So how do we, from a diagnostic perspective, uh, do we use treatment as a reasonable diagnostic test, which is frequently how we, we, we treat GERD, uh, with people who have symptoms that you think fall within that general framework, the primary care physician will give them proton pump inhibitors, almost as a diagnostic test to see if they respond. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question, and it ties in with the question that was asked about uh, when do you refer. I think the primary care physician may have to rely heavily on the, the symptom complex and on the, um, the overall all patient history and on their response to not only medical management but to lifestyle uh, dietary changes. Uh, before going to the next level. Uh, and at the next level where you have laryngoscopy, then you can introduce the, uh, those elements of the reflux finding score, uh, such as the posterior laryngitis, contact granuloma, pseudosulcus, uh, and so forth. So I think it's, um, uh, it's going to be a combination of symptoms and response to empiric management. And I don't want to underestimate the importance of the dietary change and uh, we talked earlier about singers uh, in our pre-conference chat and, and singers tend to have very bad um, patterns of eating uh, late at night and things that clearly aggravate uh, reflux. If you can change some of those behaviors, uh, most of these will be uh, resolved before you have to go on to the next stage. Okay, thanks. A very interesting uh, discussion, uh, both of you. Kim, is there, has anyone stepped up with a question? Yes, we do have another question from Regina with the Center for Discovery. Please go ahead. This is actually Regina Olliston at the Center for Discovery in New York. Um, I'm uh, internal medicine and pediatrics, and we deal with a large residential developmentally disabled population. We currently have 47 individuals who are two. We have two questions. 
one of which is uh, whether there's any noted superiority of one proton pump inhibitor over another as there are multiple agents available. And the other is in this type of population where the presentation of symptoms is uh, going to be different and difficult to assess because the majority of the patients are nonverbal or minimally verbal and um, the, many of the tube-fed patients will have partial oral feedings. Uh, is there any um, evidence or experience with the uh, prevalence of LPR in the developmentally disabled? Very interesting. Uh, Dr. Dr. Ford, you want to start with that? Okay. Uh, first of all, I think that um, I can't say that one PPI is clearly better than another. Uh, we tend to be dictated to largely by, by what various managed care programs uh, allow their patients to, to have. Um, I use omeprazole as a, as a baseline mainly because that's available over the counter and patients can get to it. Uh, I think it's more a matter of proper dosing and taking it at the, at the proper time. Uh, there was a recent study, which I may have mentioned earlier, that showed that patients who are partially responsive uh, at regular doses can uh, be completely responsive by doubling the doses. And so I think dosage is probably more important and pattern of taking it uh, prior to meals is more important than the particular type of proton pump inhibitor that you use. Uh, regarding the, the, that population of patients that you're dealing with, I think that's very difficult. And in fact, uh, um, it depends a little bit on how they present. Uh, they might be presenting with uh, laryngospasm or hoarseness, uh, objectively suggesting that there are changes in the laryngopharynx. And I think in those, in those instances, it would be prudent to fairly early on uh, perform a flexible uh, laryngoscopic examination as a minimum to see if there are objective changes that then can be tracked as a patient is treated medically. Okay, very interesting issue. Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, uh, next question, if we have one. Yes, our next question will come from Salam with Paseo Medical. Please go ahead. Yeah, hi, my name is Salam Rafiq. I'm Phoenix, Arizona, pulmonologist. And uh, I see a lot of patients refer to me for chronic cough and, and who I suspect have uh, LPR. The problem I have is I have a lot of patients who uh, cannot afford or their insurance plan doesn't approve a twice-a-day proton pump inhibitor, which is what I want to do to, to do a therapeutic trial. And I understand you have to use twice-a-day dosage to do a good trial and use it for three months. So what, what should I do in those cases? I guess one option is to use the Prilosec OTC, but I understand that, that they'll have to take like two tablets BID to really get the equivalent effect. And should I, should I proceed with a pH probe in those cases and try to prove that that's what they have? That's what I'd like to know. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. All right, again, I guess let's start with you, Dr. Ford. It's a very difficult problem. I think we all deal with that. I think it's partly an education thing, and I end up writing letters to and to managed care groups uh, explaining that uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux requires a different uh, uh, dosage uh, amount of treatment and that really are superior. However, in many cases, they still won't allow it. And in those instances, we work very heavily on the behavioral changes and dietary changes, and we'll use um, uh, H2 uh, antagonists, uh, it doesn't work as well. 
Um, but uh, I think it's going to be a gradual educational process. It's one of my motivations for writing this article because I still think that uh, uh, we need to disseminate uh, information about this, this entity. So there's an education piece here in terms of insurers understanding exactly the nature of LPR and what's really required. Is that that's what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Dr. Kylo, any experience with this at all in, in terms of you're running up against any kinds of barriers like that? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation, Madge, and uh, we talked about this a little bit before. When, when, when I read the article uh, and, and I reflected on my own reaction to the article, uh, it was mostly one of uh, uh, my response and my thinking was mostly one of uh, I'm, being, I'm being educated on a clinical entity that I don't know that much about as opposed to understanding a system change that I needed to make. From my perspective, this was very much at the educational phase. Before, before you can expect people to do something different around a clinical entity, they need to understand that clinical entity. So as an example, if we were to go, to go out and talk to doctors about using aspirin, uh, after heart attacks, almost all of them would know the, not, know the content, the data on why we should use aspirin after heart attacks. In this case, we went out and talked to them, and so in, that, in, the, in the aspirin example, that is, a, that is a system improvement we need to make. We need to help them and their practices develop systems so it is hard not to give the right patient an aspirin. Uh, they know the content. It's a system change. In this case, it very much is uh, starting at the educational level where we need to make clinicians, I think, increasingly aware of LPR as a clinical entity. And so as a first step in improvement, I do believe that there's a lot of, uh, of baseline education to do. And then we have to say, as we educate our physicians, we know that that's not enough. We need to help them make changes in their practice, which allow them to make, to deliver highly reliable care in this area to their patients. How do we do that? But again, I think the first case, the first step in, in this instance is probably an educational one. Do you uh, see, Dr. Kylo, that the symptom index uh, that's outlined, uh, the reflux symptom index, would that be something that could be pretty easily integrated uh, as part of that education piece, but also as almost a, a, a trigger, so as one is doing an intake uh, and looking at some symptoms, uh, that that symptom uh, index might be something that practitioners could use and turn to? I think very much so, and uh, such a symptom index can be, uh, you know, built into uh, both educational efforts, but into triage protocols for those organizations that have, you know, uh, nurses doing doing triage and they use such systems, or they could potentially be built into electronic health records and things along those lines also. So there are a number of ways of taking the knowledge, using it for education, and also building it into the symptoms, uh, into the, the systems. I was I was actually curious. And uh, based on the last caller's response, also the pulmonologist, when we first started talking about this, I went into my electronic record and looked up laryngopharyngeal reflux, and there's not an ICD-9 code for it. So, so uh, you can't even put it down as a diagnosis, a recognizable diagnosis for your insurers right now, which I think is part of the challenge. Wow, so that's, that could be a real uh, deterrent that hopefully uh, this discussion and the article uh, will, will help to begin to uh, alter. Uh, Kim, is, is there another question? We actually do have another question from Paul with the California Academy of Family Health. Please go ahead. Hello, um, hi, my name is uh, Paul Grossman. I'm a California family physician. And um, I have a question regarding um, uh, clinical and demographic red flags that should prompt um, immediate referral to rule out neoplasia 
in patients presenting with um, hoarseness and uh, high reflux uh, symptom indexes. I'll take that. Um, I think that the there's a real concern that uh, reflux can be a aggravating or causative factor for cancer, and there's several uh, articles written over the past decade that have demonstrated that um, uh, association not only with laryngeal cancer, but also with uh, esophageal, upper esophageal, uh, hypopharyngeal cancers. I think that the one symptom um, that would be a red flag to me would be progressive hoarseness or progressive dysphagia. Uh, and particularly if it's been progressive over a period of months rather than just a few uh, days or even a couple of weeks. Um, so whether you're treating these patients empirically or not, if the symptoms are progressive, then that's a definite red flag. It calls for, I think, immediate uh, endoscopy, and I wouldn't wait for scheduling a, uh, an impedance study uh, or, um, uh, or any other uh, uh, diagnostic study, you need to actually see what the tissues are like and, uh, and perhaps do a biopsy. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. Ford, does LPR actually lay the groundwork or in some sense cause cancer, or could it? Well, it's inferential, and uh, we know that it's an irritant. Uh, we know that if you look at a, a series of patients who developed develop laryngeal cancer who were non-smokers, that the vast majority of those patients have documented uh, laryngopharyngeal reflux. We know that smoking causes it, so if you take away the smoking as a, as a variable and just look at those who are non-smokers, uh, virtually all these patients uh, have reflux, so that's a strong indicator. Uh, we also have patients, I have patients that I've followed who have had uncontrolled reflux and after what appeared to be successful radiation therapy or limited laryngeal surgery, they've gone on to develop uh, recurrence uh, of their disease and require uh, laryngectomy often. All right, thank you very much. Uh, Kim, another question? There are no further questions at this time. Okay. Um, I One thing that strikes me, uh, both Dr. Ford and Dr. Kylo, uh, and this kind of came up earlier in, in your presentation, Dr. Ford, is that there's a real consumer patient education piece in this as well. Uh, in terms of awareness, uh, because it sounds as though with over-the-counter uh, remedies and sort of taking matters into one's own hand, uh, people can actually make things worse. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit more? Well, I think that uh, one, of, one of the concerns is that uh, uh, by taking things into their own hands and treating this empirically, without adequate follow-up or monitoring, uh, you, can, you can overlook things like we were just talking about cancer, but you can certainly overlook uh, asthma, you can overlook uh, uh, other benign lesions of the larynx uh, and, uh, and other conditions that can present with, with similar symptoms. You can overlook allergies that should be investigated. So I, I think that should be a deterrent to uh, having patients empirically uh, treating themselves. Dr. Kylo, I'm curious whether uh, just even as you're, you know, getting more used to this article and this discussion, are there some things that are occurring to you that you might do differently uh, next week? Not to put you on the spot, <laughs> but I'm, I'm just curious uh, as your wheels turn, as we know they often do. 
uh, are, are there some even some small steps that you might imagine taking? Well, Madge, I think it's a, it's a good question. The first thing that I did when I read the article was to uh, send it around to all of my physician colleagues. We're a five-physician group. And so it was, uh, first and foremost, an awareness-building activity. Um, and uh, the second thing was to have a conversation. Those reinforcing activities, reading an article is very good. Discussing an article is, uh, is even better because it, it drives the knowledge, to, I think, deeper into uh, our understanding of these clinical conditions, and it is more effective at changing behaviors. Uh, easy for me to do in a five-physician practice, less easy to do if you're a part of a, a much larger group. But most larger groups are, 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 uh, are made up of smaller microsystems that look a lot like ours, you know, clinical entities, practices. Uh, and so I think that those conversations can take place. And, and should they take place? Well, I think the reality is that these uh, uh, symptoms that can be LPR are very, very common, particularly things like chronic cough. And so I think it's a worthy topic to have a reasonable amount of discussion on uh, and to suggest to uh, your, your local hospital that you have, you know, grand rounds and things like that on it. So awareness building, I think, is first and foremost. Uh, and then while we, while we have not found a way uh, to build the knowledge yet into our electronic health record, I do believe that we have talked about it sufficiently that it's changed the way we're, we're managing people with cough that we think uh, is now more consistent with LPR uh, and uh, the intensity of the uh, proton pump inhibitor use that we have. That's how we've gone about it. It's not as sophisticated as I'd like to admit at this point, but uh, but uh, that's how we've gone about it, Madge. Well, that's very, very helpful. Kim, any questions? We do have another question from Jeffrey with Dr. J&L Harry's Medical. Please go ahead. Hi, it's Jeff Harris from British Columbia. I'm a general practitioner, and I was looking at the algorithm um, for assessment management of LPR, and the I've just had a question about the three-month follow-up assessment, and I just, from my perspective, that's a long time to to wait to reassess. I would I would have in my practice, um, I would put someone on a PPI and have them back in a, two weeks, for example to see whether there's any response, and if there was a response, fine, we carry on um, for eight, normally I do eight weeks, but um, but if there was no response at all, I'd probably bump up the dose, and I'm just wondering, that's not until after three months in your in your algorithm, and I just wondered, is, am, I'm, am I jumping the gun for increasing it if there's no um, impact? Good question about uh, how much time one waits. Uh, Dr. Ford? I think that's a great question, and um, in fact, as I looked at some of the literature, there were some studies done, done early on that concluded that PPIs were not effective for treating uh, LPR, and they were based on uh, studies that went on for maybe four to eight weeks at the most. And, uh, and what we found is that in most instances, uh, a short two to four week course is inadequate to reverse the symptoms of LPR, unlike GERD, where you can get a response within weeks. So uh, it's really essential to carry that on for at least two months, and I suggested three months in the, in the algorithm. Um, and anything short of that uh, is really, I think, uh, inadequate. And uh, oftentimes, the symptoms uh, can take uh, three months or more, and the findings can take six months to a year. 
to go away. Uh, I can give you an example of a, a colleague of mine who had a huge granuloma, and I wanted to um, operate, and his wife said, no, you can't do that. Uh, I said, well, we'll just treat for a long time with uh, proton pump inhibitors. After six months, it had only gradually regressed, but after a year and a half, it went away completely. So it does take uh, a long time and oftentimes uh, uh, more than the three months to, to get a response. I think at three months, doubling the dose is appropriate. Okay, thank you. That's very, very clear. Um, we could probably sneak in one more question, Kim, if we've got one. There actually are no more questions at this time. All right. Well, how convenient. <laughs> I'm going to ask I just a, a what did you say? You've I got one. one. Go for it. Yep. Um, so, um, Dr. Ford, you know, it, this really makes me wonder with, again, the frequency of this. Um, is there any suggestion that we think about training primary care docs to do, uh, you know, laryngoscopy? Is it is it is it that technical of a thing to do? Or do you think it's the kind of thing that primary care docs could realistically and accurately do in their practice? Uh, I think that uh, it depends on the individual, and uh, there are many primary care doctors who are familiar with using flexible fiber optic instruments. And if, in fact, you're familiar with that, then looking at the larynx is, uh, is not uh, that uh, difficult of a trick. Um, as we train our medical students who are going through now, uh, we used to train them in using a laryngeal mirror, which none of them could really quite master. It right. usually took years to do that. But, uh, but on the other hand, the flexible endoscope, uh, uh, I train them and say, look, you might be using this in the emergency room or in a primary care setting. And, uh, and they catch on to that uh, pretty quickly. So I do think it's a useful, although very expensive and fragile instrument, uh, and it's one that I would probably encourage you, particularly if, if your practice is characterized by seeing this type of, uh, of patient. Okay, thank you. Uh, one last quick thing I'm going to throw in, since knowing how sometimes uh, one step uh, is, is often easier to follow, how close are we to having any kind of simple, reliable test for LPR? Uh, great question, and I think we're, we're getting there. Uh, there's some work being done at, uh, uh, in Winston-Salem where they're looking at a possible diagnostic marker using immunohistochemical techniques where you might be able to do a, a simple um, uh, outpatient in the office, even biopsy, and, and note the uh, presence of pepsin or the absence of uh, um, of uh, enzymes that uh, uh, neutralize acid in, in that area. And uh, they're quite far along with this, and they anticipate that uh, within the not very distant future, perhaps within the next year, uh, there will be such an instrument available. All right. Well, that's really something then to look towards, and you've certainly laid a lot of really good groundwork for us. Uh, thanks. Uh, just a very, very interesting discussion, a lot to, for everyone to think about. Uh, a quick reminder that IHI and JAMA plan to study the impact of author in the room on call participants' clinical practice using two short surveys. Please don't forget to complete the surveys that will be emailed to you, and we greatly appreciate your taking part in this important research about the value of this type of discussion. So that is all the time we have for questions. There will be a web-based discussion group available on IHI's website for participants who'd like to continue a conversation with one another. You will
will find a link to this discussion group right on the home page of IHI.org. Look under Community, then Discussion Groups. In order to view or participate in the discussion group, you must register with IHI.org, but it's free and simple to do so. We're coming to the end now of this eighth in a series of hour-long discussions we call Author in the Room. I want to thank uh, Dr. Charles Ford and Dr. Chuck Kylo for their knowledge and guidance today. And quickly, uh, each of you, why don't you uh, give us some parting remarks. Uh, Dr. Ford, we'll start with you. I would just say that it's, uh, it's been a great pleasure to talk about this. It's something I deal with every day, and uh, hopefully it will heighten your awareness and, uh, and we'll be able to, to uh, help the uh, uh, managed care folks and the, uh, the industry to support our treating our patients adequately. Thank you. And Dr. Kylo. Uh, uh, no comments, Madge. I think it's been a wonderful call, and I appreciate Dr. Ford's participation. All right. Terrific, both of you. Thank you again. This is a monthly series that takes place the third Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion takes place on November 16th. The focus will be the just-published article, Early Mortality Among Medicare Beneficiaries Undergoing Bariatric Surgical Procedures. Look for further details on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical practice. The project is a collaboration between the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement generously funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Again, thanks to our guests and to all of you for being part of Author in the Room. I'm Madge Kaplan of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Good day, everyone. <laughs>